What's up, Poison Pals? Welcome back to That Shit is Poison, featuring myself, Megan Gesner. And myself, Harini Bot. And we have a very, very special guest on the podcast today. We have Allie Fulsick. She is a current PhD candidate in toxicology, specifically environmental toxicology at Texas A&M University. But she also has a blog called The Pretty PhD Blog, which is lifestyle, also her work that she does in toxicology and all of the things. So of course, we had to have her on the podcast. So she's going to be our guest for today. So welcome, Allie. Yes, welcome. Thanks for coming, Allie. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I am currently hopefully finishing up my PhD soon um, in toxicology. I'm down at Texas A&M in College Station, which is northwest kind of Houston. But I do a lot of research on water quality and specifically cyanotoxins in water. And these are toxins that are produced by harmful algal blooms, uh, which I can definitely talk about more later. I also started, like you said, the Pretty PhD blog, which was really born to show women that you can be a scientist and still have a social life and still be fashionable and still do Mm -hmm. all the feminine girly things that you want to do, but you can still be educated. And so I really use that blog, hopefully, to show women that you don't have to pick one or the other. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. it. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. I was checking out the Pretty PhD just yesterday, uh, scrolling through your, your, your homepage, and I was like, Man, this lady, <laughs> she's got the COVIDs tied to your genetics on one side and then holiday gift guide on the other side. I'm like, this is it this is where I gotta get it all. This is this is the spot. Full circle, it was yeah. It was pretty amazing. Yes. And also it's it's a lovely blog. It's a lovely site. Yeah, it's definitely weird if you're not aware of why I'm combining those things on my blog to see like a fashion post with a science post. It doesn't really make sense. But my goal is to really kind of get people who aren't looking for science into science. And so if I can attract someone to my blog based off of a fashion post about my vacation outfits, maybe they'll come over and read some of my science information about, say, I did a lot of articles on COVID, or I've even done an article about the science behind hair dye and how that works in your hair, because that might be something of interest to somebody who's not normally interested in science. So that's kind of the goal of combining the two. Yeah, that I find that That's so fascinating. Awesome. And I love that it's so well received because I, I agree with you. I feel like people, especially women in science, don't feel like they can do both or they can't be both because if they're beautiful or they're, they're into fashion, they're not as smart, perceived as as smart. And that's so, 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 so not true. Uh, we can be everything mm-hmm. all at once. So I love that. Yeah, I recently, well, this this goes along with this. I was just, you know, talking. I recently was on TikTok and there was this, you know, for you page comes up. Someone woman was like, we got to normalize being funny, smart, sexy, all at the yes. same time, right? Because for some reason, apparently we can't be that mm. trifecta. But no, <laughs> we can't. Right. Totally and can. the whole you don't look like a scientist thing mm. needs to go away because oh I'm so sick of hearing that. <laughs> yeah, completely. And there were so many, I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, Ali, do you remember there's all these uh articles and publications that came out this year about the doctors in bikinis or not wearing bikinis. Yes, I was going to mention that. I was like, what is going on? I cannot believe that they would publish at these like pretty like prestigious journals too. So yeah, that rhetoric has to go. (laughs) 
which a whole nother topic of conversation, oh, but yeah. that even points to how can a journal or why would a journal publish something like that in the first correct, place? But correct. I mean, whole nother topic. Yeah, whole other <laughs> kind of worms for sure. But today we're going to talk about you, Allie, and everything that you do. So we actually are going to do a Q&A portion for the first half of the episode, and then we're going to jump into a story that Allie has prepared for us. So do you want to jump into the Q&A, Megan? Yeah, let's do it. It feels a little unnatural because usually we're like, all right, Allie, pick your poison. But I know we're going to be like, okay, Allie, question number one. <laughs> That's how we'll start. Yeah, usually we just go into a story straight away. But today, I yeah. mean, we just have to ask you because I'm really, obviously, we love toxicology here. So this is our first time that we're actually having someone in the field. So we just have to ask all these questions. Yay, so that's exciting. Yeah. yeah. So let's start with pretty, I mean, I imagine a very basic question for you. But for our listeners, we need an education. So the first question we have for you, Ali, is what is toxicology and what is it to you? Well, I mean, I'd say like the most basic way you could say what toxicology is, is it's basically the study of what happens to living things when they're exposed to something they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just baseline. They shouldn't be exposed. What happens? Um, And kind of the, I don't want to say funny way to say it, but a lot of people say it's just the the study of poisons. Mm -hmm. And we have this principle in toxicology, and I'm sure you guys use it too, but the dose makes the poison. And it was this uh, saying that was originally coined by Paracelsus in whatever long ago, but basically saying that depending on how much of something you're exposed to uh, dictates what the uh, adverse effects or the harm to you is. And so I would say toxicology overall is just the study of that. Mm -hmm. To Mm -hmm. me personally, I would say that toxicology is really the intersection of all sciences. I think it's a really Mm -hmm. applicable science Mm -hmm. because it's obviously applied to things that happen every day, but it's also really cool that it's interdisciplinary. So it, it takes in different sciences like medicine, pharmacology, biology, chemistry, even physics, and it just kind of brings them all together and shows you how you can solve problems. Yeah, 100% agree. Follow-up question no. for Allie. <laughs> what is the biggest misconception around to- toxicology? Mm. Like if someone hears the word toxicology, what's the first thing that it's like, Oh, well, that's not really right about that. If there Uh, even are any. I think, you know, I'm sure there's plenty (laughs) of them. I'm just trying to think of like a main one. But I think a big one is like things that are natural are not toxic Mm. and things that are man-made are toxic. And that is so not the case. Complete overlap in both sides as to what will harm you and what won't. Obviously, medicine has brought us so many man-made drugs that are therapeutic, but at the same time, there are plenty of natural toxins that are just as harmful as, say, a man-made chemical that's harmful. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a big misconception in the field. Yeah, that is so true. So, so true. (laughs) What is environmental toxicology? Because personally, like I just thought of toxicology as a whole. And then when I was reading about your blog and came across your Instagram, I was like, oh, like this is a specific field. And I find that so fascinating. So what exactly is that? And what does that entail? Yeah, I mean, within toxicology, there's a bunch of subfields, I guess you could call them. And I specifically are kind of in, I I would say that environmental toxicology is probably the the biggest subfield of Mm -hmm. toxicology, because I think you can further break down environmental tox. But It's basically what are the harmful effects of chemicals or 
biologics or physical agents mm-hmm. or whatever the hazard is and what are those effects on living organisms being both human health and the environment. And so normally you're looking at, I guess, toxins that are in the environment and their effects on the rest of the environment, but also human health. But there are a lot of different, like I said, subfields of toxicology, like regulatory toxicology focuses on basically using all the studies from other toxicologists to create regulation mm-hmm. to keep people safe. There's also there's also computational toxicology, which really focuses on the modeling side of things. So kind of predicting the toxicology of either a chemical, a drug or something like that um, without having to use test organisms and things like that. But yeah, that's kind of just the the broad what is environmental tox. Yeah, completely. One of the assignments I had to do for my poison control rotation was my preceptor was like, go to like a CVS or, you know, whatever. And then I want you to find 20 toxins that are in just like over the counter household products. And I, I mean, I knew just from general knowledge, like, yeah, like, you know, obviously a lot of stuff you cannot ingest because that's why you have like the poison control phone number on the back of all the labels. But when I actually went to go read everything, I'm like, oh my God, like some of this stuff is really (laughs) terrifying that it's just, you know, within hand's reach of our children or even us as adults, because adults do stupid things too. So I totally imagine that environmental toxicology is a huge subfield of toxicology. Yeah, wasn't there some TikTok trend where they were eating Tide Pods or something, you know, because we're all brilliant. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, Allie, how did you decide to go into this field? Or like, why? Why did you choose toxicology? Yeah, it's, can I go on like a little story time? Because it's kind of complicated. But I had no idea that I was going to end up in toxicology. And I think that's one thing I try to promote on my blog as well is that you're not always going to know your path until you get there. And it's always good to try new things. But so I'm from New Hampshire, but my dad's military. So I've kind of moved around a lot, but most of my time was spent in New Hampshire. And when I decided to go to undergrad, I was like, I am done with this snow. I am going to Florida and I'm going to study marine biology and I'm going to study sharks and I'm going to live on a tropical island. And that was like my goal. (laughs) (laughs) And Florida was the perfect place to Mm -hmm. do that. And so um, I moved down there, but I kind of figured out as I was doing it that marine biology is kind of niche, especially as an undergrad major, because mm-hmm. you're, you're taking such niche classes. And I really wanted kind of a good overall knowledge of all the different sciences, because I still was super interested in chemistry and, and, and other sciences. And so I ended up doing my degree in biochemistry, and I spent all four years of my undergrad, I worked in labs, which was amazing and the benefit of going to a small school. But my two final years, I worked in a plant biochemistry lab. And so I was looking at, I was working with algae, which is kind of how I got into the algae atmosphere. But we were looking at chemical signaling between plants, but also algae and bacteria and kind of the quorum sensing. And I ended up getting an internship, which again was super random, but I had applied to it with this place called NCTR, which stands for the National Center for Toxicological Research. And it's actually the research branch of the FDA. So I moved out to Arkansas for a summer, first time I had been over there. And I got exposed to toxicology because that's not something we really did in my undergraduate classes or talked about. And while I was there, I was actually working on 
kind of a bioinformatics related project looking for biomarkers of toxicity due to cancer drugs. But I still really loved environmental stuff. I've always loved kind of uh, conservation work and just environmental applications of things. And so my advisor there was like, oh, hey, there's this whole other field of toxicology called environmental toxicology. And so again, still on the line, I I, uh, ended up applying and getting a travel grant to go to the Society of Toxicology annual meeting uh, to present this research that I did over the summer. And I had my name in their little meeting booklet or whatever, because Mm -hmm. I had won the award. It was sponsored by Pfizer. And I actually got this random email one day from this guy at Texas A&M, who actually is the chair of my program now. But he's like, hey, I saw your name in in research in in this book. You should look into toxicology. So long story short, ended up applying there. I was between toxicology and chemistry for my graduate school and applied there, got in, and I ended up in Texas. So kind of a long story, but It's how I found the field, and I now absolutely love it because I kind of get to do exactly what I sought out to do, which is combine all these different sciences into one. That is so cool. That I mean, that wasn't a long story at all. I was fully engrossed from that. But it's so funny how things work out. You know, you just kind of let life happen to you, and it just takes you on this path. You know, I think that was a really great example of not planning every single moment of your life out and just kind of seeing where it takes you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like and you, you should never stop yeah. trying new things. And that's like one of mm-hmm. my, I guess, yeah. words to live by now is like, just try yeah, it. Totally, you never know. Totally agree. Also, why yeah. would you know what you want to do when you're 18? <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's a little yeah. ridiculous too. 100%. So. <laughs> I did just want to say, I think your story also speaks to those folks who might be in science or research who kind of, you know, they're looking for that interdisciplinary topic or subject. And sometimes, just like how you mentioned with marine biology, like things can be too niche. And you're like, I just need something a little more broad. And for me, it's super illuminating to hear toxicology is super, Mm -hmm. super interdisciplinary. (laughs) I should have known that at this point doing this podcast. (laughs) I think it's good for people, people who might be pursuing their undergrad or graduate degrees to hear this because it's like, hey, if you're someone who's interested in chemistry, but also interested in environmental Mm -hmm. sciences, this could be your little in between. Yeah, for sure. Because so, you yeah. you don't have to have an undergraduate toxicology degree right. to go into either a, 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 the fields just to get a job or even to go into graduate school. And honestly, there are very, very few undergraduate toxicology programs. So for the most part, it's mm. people coming from all these different fields and making up this this kind yeah, of new completely. field. That's what I was just going to say. Awesome. I totally agree with you. They don't talk about toxicology at all because I actually was a biochem undergrad major as well. And it's not even talked about at all. So, I mean, for you to find out about it, like in general, you'd have to have an already interest in it or somebody else telling you, oh, you might like toxicology, right? Which I think is kind of like it's a little tiny treasure if you find out about it. But it's also a shame because I think toxicology is so, so cool. Uh, And I wish more people knew about it. So I think that's great that you're doing the blog and shouting that out. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So next question. (laughs) Yeah. What is your day-to-day like at your job currently? Uh, So it's definitely, it's, it's changed over like the progression of my degree. Mm -hmm. When I first started and, and honestly up until probably a couple months ago, it was a lot of lab work. So it was going in every day, at least part of the day Mm -hmm. and being in lab and doing experiments. A lot of other kind of related stuff is writing. You do a lot of writing for 
just your research as far as writing up journal articles, but also when you're doing a PhD, you have to write a proposal, which is what you're going to do your research on. And then you also end up writing your dissertation, which is where I'm currently at. So right now, I mean, a lot of my time is spent at home writing, but I would say, you know, in the past, it was a lot of lab work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And what schooling is required or what is the academic path like to receive a PhD in this space? Yeah, so um, I know every program is going to be different, but in my program specifically, I mean, like I said earlier, you can kind of be, you can do anything Mm -hmm. for your undergrad really and go into toxicology. I think one of the biggest things to go into any PhD program as an undergrad is trying to get research experience in general because that really shows that you're interested. And also, if you're able to start developing those lab hands early, that's that's always amazing. Because it's, I know some grad students that didn't start in a lab until they got oh, to grad wow. school, and it was a huge learning yeah, curve. But as far as schooling is concerned, I would say for toxicology, you just want to have a good basis in all of your different sciences, mm-hmm. you know, biology, chemistry, physics kind of stuff. And then for my program specifically in my PhD, we kind of stack our coursework at the beginning. And a lot of our coursework included things like risk assessment, which is phenomenal because I I can say later, but but I'm hoping to go kind of more the risk assessment route. So that was really helpful, as well as environmental toxicology and and organ toxicity and and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. So I think broadly to answer the question, you really don't need anything specifically to go into it. But once you get into your program is where you do a lot of that, that learning about it. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so you do take some classes maybe for like the first year or two years, or is it just variable? Yeah, so for ours, pretty much it was the first two years, I believe. And so there's a bunch of core courses that you take. And then I believe there's a couple of electives. So that's where I chose to take some courses like contaminant hydrogeology, which let me tell you was not the best decision. I'm not an engineer. And it was all like (laughs) modeling groundwater and stuff. And it was way over my head. Um, I I had to take up to like Calc 3 in undergrad because I had to take physical chemistry Mm -hmm. as a biochemist. And I I don't want to do integrals anymore. I just don't. No, so that class wasn't it's fun. But yeah. I also took a bioinformatics course, which taught me the basics of like coding in Linux and stuff. And so that was really interesting. But yeah, you can kind of tailor it as when it comes to your electives as far as what would help you with your project. Yeah. And what is the coolest part about what you do? Hmm. Um, I mean, my favorite thing about my PhD right now would be that it's a really applicable topic that I'm working on. And it's something that hopefully will have a direct effect to human health and Mm -hmm. just, you know, all around. Just being applicable to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Being applicable to the problems that we're facing currently in in the world, which is what's really cool to me. And, And again, the applicability of toxicology. So I would say like my favorite part is just my project in general and what I'm able to do with it. So because that's where your answer ended. I'm actually going to skip down the list to because, you know, just to segue a little into your <laughs> okay. project. Yeah. And also just just yeah. from us, 
I know you've been working on your dissertation. So if you feel like, God, I don't really want to talk about this at all, just let us know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, totally yeah. fine. Because like... I know how it can be to be like, I've been <laughs> working true. on this all friggin' day, month, and then like suddenly you have ra- randos just yeah. trying to ask you about it. I understand. No, not okay. at all. All right. So. <laughs> You know, that being said, you had mentioned before that your dissertation and what you're working on your PhD involves algal blooms, but I'm tr- I'm going to try to be good about the language. I did read on the Pretty PhD that you're currently working on the irradiation of tap water to eliminate toxins that are caused by <laughs> harmful cyanobacterial blooms which I learned from you reading your blog, that that's often misnomered (laughs) as algal blooms. So we're talking about cyanobacterial blooms. What I'm curious about here is what are the toxins that are caused by these cyanobacterial blooms and how do they impact the body? Yeah, so (laughs) it's a lot. Um, So I know when there (laughs) are (laughs) so harmful algal blooms are something a lot of people have heard of and even seen. They're Mm -hmm. super prevalent and they're becoming more prevalent just due to you know rising water temperatures Mm -hmm. and increasing nutrient pollution in water bodies. It just causes this overgrowth of these organisms, and Mm -hmm. it's always been referred to as harmful algal blooms or HABs. And this is true. Sometimes they are algae. A lot of marine blooms tend to be algae, but most of the freshwater blooms are actually cyanobacteria, which were also misidentified originally as algae. They were called blue-green algae. Mm. And so the reason I specify between the two is because algae are eukaryotes and cyanobacteria are prokaryotes. So cyanobacteria Mm. are a type of bacteria, but they're photosynthetic. So that's kind of where the overlap is. Mm. And mm-hmm. they're actually some of the oldest organisms on the planet. They are thought to have been responsible for putting oxygen in our atmosphere when the earth was kind of developing and all that kind of stuff. But mm. a lot of these cyanobacteria are responsible for producing cyanotoxins. So that's just what we call the toxins mm. they produce. And these cyanotoxins, they tend to be neurotoxins or liver toxins. Um, there are some like dermal irritants mm. kind of thing, but primarily those are the two big classes. Specifically, I work with a cyanobacterium that's one of the most common in these blooms, just because we always look at the most common, right? And it's called Microcystis mm-hmm. aeruginosa. And it is responsible primarily for producing a toxin called microcystin. So microcystin is a part of the class of liver toxins of these cyanotoxins. So it's really potent, actually. It's not regulated, technically, in the U.S. However, (laughs) it is very potent. And you can be exposed both recreationally, like if you were to be swimming in a water body that Mm -hmm. has a bloom, but it can also potentially get into drinking water. And so The problem is when these blooms occur in source water, so source waters are lakes or rivers, these feed our drinking water treatment plants. And so we'd like to hope that these plants are able to remove both the cyanobacteria, algae, whatever, and also the toxins, but that's not always the case. And so that's how they could potentially end up in tap water. So most of the time, a lot of these water treatment plants are using uh, different chemical treatments to treat these toxins. You can use the conventional treatments like coagulation, flocculation, sedimentation, all those kind of things to remove the cells themselves. But in the case of microcystis, they have the toxin that's 
inside the cell and outside the cell. So not only do you have to remove the cell itself, but you have to remove the toxin afterward. And so some of these chemical additives, which if you're at all familiar with water treatment, things like chlorine, bromine, which isn't used very much anymore, they can actually create more harmful products. They're called disinfection byproducts when they react with different pollutants, which can also be toxic. So win-win there, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But they also, a lot of places now use ozonation, which doesn't have that issue with disinfection byproducts, but it's not always completely efficient at removing the toxins, especially if it's a super high concentration when a bloom is, is really large. An example of this is in Toledo, Ohio, which is on Lake Erie. So I believe it was 2014, basically they had a week where they had to shut off public water supply because there was a bloom in Lake Erie and it wasn't Mm. properly treated in their treatment plant and it was getting into tap water above the health advisory. And I say health advisory because it's not regulated. So this is basically the advisory that the EPA sets that you should look out for this, but we're not going to tell you you have to. Um, And so my research really focuses on, is there a better way to treat it? And my lab's kind of interesting in that we're all in different areas. I'm a toxicologist. We have food scientists. We have microbiologists. Um, Technically, our our lab is located in food science and technology. Mm. But what all, I guess, brings us all together is this technology called electron beam irradiation or E-beam. And basically what it is, is it's a form of ionizing radiation Mm -hmm. that is made from commercial electricity. Mm -hmm. So we're not using cobalt or or some radioactive element to create this irradiation. We're just using electricity. We can turn it on and off Mm -hmm. and we can basically control what dose we're giving everything. And this is used commercially right now for medical device sterilization. So when you are at a hospital and they're opening the packaging of, say, a syringe or something, a lot of that's been e-beam treated because it can degrade both pollutants and uh, pathogens. But it's also used pretty frequently for foods Mm -hmm. and things like oranges and guavas and things like that. We can irradiate them and it actually reduces the bio burden on the outside of the fruit. So that's kind of what it's used for currently. But what we're trying to show is that it can be used for more environmental applications. That's where my research comes in. I'm sorry for the long explanation. but So basically, we're trying to show that if we were to put this e-beam technology into a water treatment plant, we can degrade both the toxin and the cyanobacteria from reaching your drinking water. But also, it's not a specific process. We consider it an AORP, so an advanced oxidative and reductive process. So ozone is just oxidative, but with e-beam, we produce both reactive oxidative species and reductive species. So theoretically, we could treat a variety of different pollutants in water based off of these two mechanisms. Long story short, we're trying to use it to make this toxin not toxic anymore. Wow. That's okay. super cool. That's <laughs> super cool. Don't, <laughs> don't ever apologize if you feel yeah. like you're going long. Um, we are in this and I am yeah, like we are fully into this. So, yeah. um, so I'm going <laughs> off script here because I am so curious. Okay, so you had talked about the microcystin, specifically using Toledo, Ohio as an example, Lake Erie, and how it is not regulated by the FDA. 
would you be able to summarize that process of how does it go from your lab looking at how to treat this to public health policy to where it does become regulated? What are the steps? Yeah, that's that's a huge question. Yeah. And I don't know that it's necessarily like my lab right. per se to right. regulation, but the EPA is is who's uh, in charge of regulating drinking water. There's the Safe Drinking Water Treatment mm-hmm. Act. Mm-hmm. And currently, microcystin or any cyanotoxin really is not listed on their list of regulated contaminants mm-hmm. in drinking water. However, the EPA every... Uh, I want to say two years, um, releases something called the UCMR, which is the Unregulated Contaminant UCMR. <laughs> Mass, I, I don't know. Yeah. So basically, it's a yeah, list yeah. of all these chemicals that are not regulated, but they potentially should be. And so basically, for two years after they released that list, they monitored these different lists of chemicals in drinking water around the country, and then they make conclusions at the end whether they should regulate it or not. Mm. Not going to lie, it's not a great system Mm. um, because cyanotoxins have been on that list for the past three lists. (laughs) And if you're at all into toxicology or risk assessment, you know that a lot of these government, so EPA and uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, or even IARC, which is the International Agency uh, Agency for Research on Cancer. All of these different governing bodies create these risk assessment reports. And by doing so, they basically look at all the literature that's out there for a certain contaminant, and they try to synthesize what that regulatory value should be based off of dose response modeling and, and a bunch of different stuff. And so there has been some done on microcystin a while ago. The WHO did theirs in 1998 mm-hmm. and released their guideline value. And then IARC was pretty long ago as well because it is a potential carcinogen as well. Right. It's a great toxin. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so the EPA has, I believe, done maybe two iterations of their risk assessment on microcystin. And they haven't, they've basically concluded that there's not enough evidence or research to set a a value. Mm. What I hope is that by more and more research coming out where they look at toxicology and unfortunately my my project while it is toxicology it's also a lot of engineering mm. and a lot of just fundamental biology more kind of tox studies where they look at animal studies or things like that as they look at the mechanism of microcystin being toxic hopefully with the accumulation of these studies, a new risk assessment can be done. And eventually that's what gets into policy because mm-hmm. they have to derive those values from, you know, literature. So right. I would say that's a long answer, but mm-hmm. basically I would hope that just all the researchers that are doing research in this specific field will hopefully push EPA to set a regulation in drinking Absolutely. water. Yeah. Hopefully. I two follow questions from that. You were saying that <laughs> It wasn't regulated, right? So first of all, is it not regulated in in the U.S. because not a lot of people have died from it or gotten really sick from it? It sounds like it's a pretty hefty toxin from what you're saying. And then secondly, is it regulated in other countries? Yeah, so 
they the EPA has released a provisional drinking water guideline. So basically, it's over 10 days. They have one that's for children under a certain age and then children above and adults. This is basically what your drinking water should not exceed over 10 days. And so with a lot of toxins, we see that it's not a one-time exposure thing, right? There's an accumulation over time that can lead to these effects. So we say that there's acute and chronic exposures, and there's a bunch of in-between, subchronic, subacute, whatever. Acute is basically you're exposed to a lot at one time and you get an effect from it. Chronic is you're exposed to something that's not lethal over a long period of time, and that can accumulate into things like cancer. Yeah, it's not regulated in the U.S., even though it should be. In other countries, I would say I think Australia has done a lot of work on regulating and doing those those risk assessment evaluations on microcystin. I think they're one of the countries that has a regulation set, but there aren't that many. And I'm actually, I'm trying to like visualize this table I just made for my (laughs) dissertation because I like put together a table of all these different like countries and their regulations, but it's so different between countries too, because they all derive their own things. They all make assumptions. And I hate to say it, but it's a big thing in toxicology that we do make assumptions because there's a lot of stuff we just don't know. And that's any science. We really don't. But we have these things called uncertainty factors that we implement into risk assessments. And these are basically what our um, confidence is in our different parts of the risk assessment. So if our database is lacking, we don't have many studies, we add a bigger uncertainty factor, which actually makes the derived value more conservative Mm -hmm. so that we're protecting more yeah. of the population because of that we don't know part of it. And that's always something that's baffled me about toxicology is that we have these kind of things. But I get, it does make sense in the long run. So the last part of your question was increasing prevalence, right? Yeah, kind of, I think or... actually I think you answered both of them because I was just asking why is it okay. not regulated because there's there not a huge death toll or are people not really getting sick from it? And then is it regulated in other mm-hmm. countries? So so. So luckily in the U.S., we have not had many human poisonings. And Mm. if we did, it was a while ago before we had more like the Safe Water Drinking Act, for example. There was a hemodialysis clinic in Brazil where they had over 170 patients pass away from microcystin contamination in water that was used in their treatment. And so more likely in the U.S., we're seeing livestock and pet poisonings. So you might see it in the news Mm. where you see a dog went swimming and then passed away because there was an algal bloom, which happens a Mm. lot here in in Austin, which is so upsetting. Mm. But, Mm -hmm. and while that's not like human health related, there is still this issue of, of it getting into drinking water since we've seen it as recently as, like I said, 2014. So I would hope that even if it's not super common, it's common enough that it should be regulated. Yeah, 100%. I mean, to me, the e-beam and the technique of it and using it for this purpose seems like a no-brainer. Are you guys having (laughs) any kind of barriers or resistance to getting this enacted even locally or, you know, in the community? Yeah, so anybody hears a radiation, they freak out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They think, think it's bad they think of Chernobyl they think of <laughs> right. I don't know mm-hmm. it, it's it's definitely a, a challenge to translate the science of irradiation into the public and make it understandable so I'd say that's a big pushback the other thing is just the initial investment so because it is 
irradiation, there has to be a certain amount of shielding on this machine. So basically, it's made up of an accelerator that accelerates these electrons to almost the speed of light. And then it passes through this kind of magnetic scan horn, which makes us basically focus the beam on the product that we're trying to treat. And there actually was a pilot two pilot plants, I believe. There was one in Miami and there was one in Boston, maybe in the 70s. And these were for, I think one was wastewater and one might have been drinking water, but it was basically a pilot plant to show the utility of e-beam for water treatment and funding pulled it. So it's no longer there. But Mm. a bunch of countries in Asia use e-beam in their water Mm. treatment. Oh, interesting. It is becoming more common. And so I think The main barrier besides public perception would be that initial cost because because there's so few of them, the actual people who make accelerators for this purpose are very few. So it's that Mm. initial both buying the pieces for the actual e-beam, but then making sure that your setup within your plant is shielded and just set up, I Mm -hmm. guess, in the right way. Because, you know, we already have a relatively set drinking water or wastewater treatment system in our plants. Mm-hmm. And change is always scary oh to my people. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> Especially in the scientific field, it's hard to get people to want to change things. Mm-hmm. Honestly, in my head, I'm hearing you, Allie, and I'm like, dude, it all comes yeah. down to funding. I, I mean, like, that's my <laughs> impression. Does. Because you're because when you're talking about the microsystem, you're like... You're like, honestly, with how the EPA studies it, well, the reason why it's not regulated is because there's not enough research or the research Mm -hmm. is limited. And that's why the EPA doesn't have, you know, they've only done it twice or whatever done Mm -hmm. there. So I'm just hearing that and I'm like, uh, at the end of the day, it's (laughs) funding and it's highly underfunded. And that's why it's not regulated. (laughs) We only know more about the Um, things that have funding for it. So it just makes sense. If you don't fund something, you're not going to know more it you know very true <laughs> the conundrum of it true. all <laughs> i know all right well on a semi lighter note <laughs> no i mean all of it's been light but like you know we just talked about funding and like limited funding in science and things not being regulated so on a semi lighter note what's one case study or multiple that if you're getting a doctorate in toxicology the one case study that you're always going to hear about in your schooling yeah, well, I don't know if it's going to keep it light, but <laughs> um, so. Oh, wait. The, yeah, sorry. <laughs> the, I would say like the Flint, Michigan water crisis is probably one of the biggest ones you hear about because it's pretty recent. It was in the, right. you know, 2015 timeframe and it's related not only to something that's toxic, but public health and, and how. Nobody was listening to them, you know, and so that's going to be your poison today, right? Like that's the story that you're going to bring forward for us. Why don't we do our final intro? Thanks for hanging in with us, Poison Pals. But here we go. Allie, it is your turn to what's going to be your poison. I guess I'm picking lead today. (laughs) But no, I... I think that like the the Flint water crisis is a really good like case study when it comes to toxicology and action and also just how politics unfortunately play into to to science a lot. And so I'm sure you've heard of, you know, the water crisis in Flint. They basically had a lot of lead that intruded into their water, but it was kind of this like storyline that led up to why that happened. It didn't just happen all of a sudden. So 
just to give you an idea of like timeline of events, mm. I guess. So in 2011, basically, there was a huge shutdown of a bunch of different factories, like car factories in Flint, Michigan, and they actually lost probably about half of the population within that city. And so basically, they're broke, like everybody moved out and and they didn't have any money. And so Mm. what they decided to do is they brought in these people called emergency managers, which basically try to find ways that the city can save money. And these emergency managers Mm -hmm. decided that one of the ways that Flint could save money was by switching out of the Detroit water system and stop paying for water from Detroit and basically switch to their own regional water supply from the Flint River. And they decided to do that in like 2014. Mm -hmm. Pretty much immediately after that switch, residents in Flint could see, smell, taste, everything was weird about their water was basically brown. And you might remember Mm -hmm. some of like the news stories (laughs) where it came out of the faucet is brown. Mm -hmm. And people started complaining (laughs) immediately. They're like, what the heck is going on? Why is our water brown? What's the matter with it? And the city would just come back with, you know, all the federal tests say it's fine and it's saving us money. So it's fine. So I believe What happened is in 2015 or 14, basically the end of 2014, there was some EPA report that got Mm -hmm. leaked by an employee at the EPA to this woman who had been one of the big talkers of complaining, I guess, about the water crisis. This quality report basically Mm -hmm. said that there's high levels of lead in the water in Flint, Michigan. The city, of course, comes back and they're like... Mm -hmm. No, it's because of your pipes. It has nothing to do with, wow. with our water supply. It's, it's your house's water pipes, your plumbing. And I guess eventually mm-hmm. this reached enough mm-hmm. like news sources that this group from Virginia Tech came over and did its own independent study in 2015. And basically what they concluded was, yes, there's extremely high levels of lead. This is because of corrosion of lead pipes used in the water system. You might ask, like, they didn't switch all the pipes when they switched water treatment, so why is there lead all of a sudden? Well, Mm -hmm. because they haphazardly switched water systems, this new water system didn't know what treatment or what the pipes looked like and what treatment was necessary to prevent this from happening. So I mentioned earlier in the podcast about using Mm -hmm. oxidants in water treatment. A lot of these oxidants Mm -hmm. can basically degrade these pipes and cause lead to become soluble and enter the the water supply. What happened here is exactly that. Mm -hmm. And there are ways that you can prevent this corrosion. And if they had known that there were lead pipes that were primarily used in this area, they would know they could do that. You can actually pre-treat the water with something, I believe, like phosphate ions or something, and it'll create kind of a protective coating around the lead pipe and prevent it from degrading and going into the water supply. So Detroit was previously using these treatment Mm -hmm. strategies, but Flint, Michigan did not know they needed to. And this might be like, sound crazy. Like, why do we have lead pipes? We obviously know that lead isn't good for us, but there are millions Mm -hmm. upon millions of lead pipes in the U.S. You know, our infrastructure from, especially in older cities, is just, we never thought that lead was poisonous before. And so here we are with lead pipes and we can't just replace all of them. We come back to the funding issue. So finally, of course, Flint was like, okay, fine, you got us. (laughs) And they switched back to the Detroit water supply and then gave everybody filters. Like, oh, sorry, sorry. But I think 
it should really be pointed out that there's no safe level of lead. Lead is one of those toxins that there is no safe level and it's extremely toxic for children. And so prior to switching from the Detroit water supply, the lead levels in that population in Flint, Michigan, in the children were around 2.2% or something like that. And then after this whole water crisis, they rose to 4%. And then in some of the super affected neighborhoods, this was upwards of 6%, which is just absurd. So the EPA has set, even though there is no safe level, technically, the EPA has set what they're calling an action level or maximum level that you can have in water of 15 parts per billion of lead. I know it doesn't really translate when you think of how much is in water to how much is in your bloodstream, but as low as five milligrams per deciliter in blood of lead can cause effects in children. And they're way more susceptible to lead toxicity because they're still developing. Lead is a really potent neurotoxicant that can cause mental and physical problems because their brain is developing. They unfortunately are susceptible to these problems. And again, like I mentioned earlier, lead is one of those additive toxicants. So it's not like there's this amount in your water, so that's all you got. It's each day that you're drinking this water and it has this amount of lead in it, that's just building up in your bloodstream. Some of the symptoms that you can see in children if they have high levels of lead in their system are behavioral problems, low IQ, hearing issues, learning disabilities, like the whole nine yards, and it's non-reversible. This is not something that just goes away with time. There are some treatments, I guess, for super severe cases. The, the number one treatment is to remove the source of lead. <laughs> Flint, Michigan couldn't even do that. They just told people to keep drinking it. But one of the treatments, if it were a super severe case, you can use something called chelation therapy, which is typically like substances like EDTA or DMSA, which have their own side effects. Just want to point that out. But it'll basically help chelate or um, bind the lead that's in the system and try to get it out of, of the body. But it's it's interesting because at this point, we definitely knew lead was toxic, but back in even the 70s is when we really figured out that lead was toxic. There was this one researcher, I don't remember his name at the moment, but he basically was like the, he kept sounding off the alarm that lead was toxic and nobody would believe him because we used lead for everything. We used it in paints. We used it in consumer products. We even used it in gasoline because it prevented engine knocking in I don't even know what that is, but <laughs> it did something for cars, right? Yeah. And it wasn't until, I believe, 1970 when the Clean Air Act was passed, which basically gave the EPA responsibility of regulating different contaminants. So in 1970, or 1978 was when they removed lead from paints, but it wasn't until like 1996 that we finally got it out of gasoline. Which is just wow, insane yeah. because if you look yeah. at the blood lead levels, it's a tongue twister. If you look at the blood lead levels in the entire U.S. population prior to even 10 years ago, it was absurd. And it's just because we had lead in everything. And I guess technically they started phasing out unleaded gasoline or started bringing in unleaded gasoline in the, I think, 74 or something like that. But it wasn't until 1996 that it was fully banned. So that it was is literally <laughs> 15 years ago. I think that that's a really good example as well in toxicology as far as 
one, there's so much we don't know, but that's all science. But also that when we get these regulation changes, a lot of the public who doesn't understand toxicology or some of this human health and stuff, they're like, why didn't you know this before? Why didn't you regulate this before? And it's not that we're trying to harm more people. As a scientist, a good scientist, your goal is never to harm somebody. But it is really just this progression of knowledge. And, and as we learn, these things are toxic. Um, PFOS is another great example that's in the news everywhere right now. But, you know, it's <laughs> it's not scientists trying to harm people. It's scientists updating regulations because we learn more. But I, I do want to end and just say that there's this super cool documentary that was put out by um, this news channel. I think it was in 2017. It's called Trouble Water. And if you just Google Trouble Water News 21, it'll pop up. But it's this, I think it's only like 25 minutes, but it's a little documentary on some of the water problems that we have in the United States, even now. This isn't 50 years ago. This is happening right now where people can't drink their tap water because of different contaminants and different cities that aren't doing enough. Highly recommend checking that out if you want to learn more about how the U.S. does water treatment. And obviously, caveat being that it is a news documentary, so there's things that are dramatized. Dramatized. Yeah. Dramatized, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Yes. <laughs> but, but it is a really good example of like some of the other water issues we face in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Definitely. That is, sharing. Yeah. yeah, I already put it in my all, search bar. I know, me too. I just That's yeah. why I just typed it in. <laughs> that's going to be my study break later after this. <laughs> but I actually didn't know the full story about Flint, Michigan and like what was going on at the time and why it was happening. So that was definitely an education for me. My question is, do you know why the water was brown? Was that because of the lead or just because of other like contaminants and pollutants in the water? Uh, I don't know exactly. I imagine it's partially from the lead and there's a bunch of iron and other things that are in these pipes that I'm sure were also mm -hmm. corroding um, based off of the, the treatment and, and the water running through them. So I would guess it's accumulation of just a bunch of different yeah. crap wow. that's coming out of the pipes. Wow. Well, that's just scary to even think about because... I didn't realize it was something that was happening because of what, you know, what the water was passing through was through those lead pipes. Because I'm sure we have lead pipes here in California mm -hmm. where we, where Maggie and I live. Mm -hmm. Like that could easily happen to us. It's all because they just put an, a certain treatment on it. That's why we don't get in our water. Mm -hmm. That's kind of scary to think about. But like, as well, you yeah, said. And yeah. at the end of the day, mm -hmm. it's all funding, right? Yeah. It's like they wanted to save money. Right. And it's, <laughs> it's, I, yeah. it's so sad that it's that mm -hmm. intertwining of, Again, mm -hmm. politics yeah. and science and, you know, we saw that this whole past yeah. year with COVID. And so definitely you would hope that the safety is the priority of your regulators, yeah. you know, and, and your public officials. Exactly. I, I mean, if their whole problem was that people were leaving Michigan, they're definitely going to be leaving or probably die if they continue to do that. Yeah. So it makes no sense whatsoever. So horrible. I was going to mm -hmm. say, I don't see it as... It was the problem with them using the oxidation treatment. It was the fact that they completely overlooked what infrastructure that they had and then placed the oxidation, right? It wasn't actually the treatment component. It was like how, and, and that was my question for you, Allie. It was just kind of like, like, how common is it in our history of public health and environmental toxicology that we have these huge lapses in decision making where you completely overlook an infrastructure? Because to me, I'm just like, I don't know, as a third party person hearing this, I'm like, it is mind boggling. Like, 
to do that. It just seems like a huge overlook. They went from like step A to Z. What? So like, is that something that we see in history often? Especially, I think what's also Poison Pals, reminder, the Flint, Michigan water crisis went from 2014 to 2019. Okay, 20, well, quote unquote was resolved, quote unquote resolved in 2019. The lasting effects of lead poisoning is going to go on forever for these children who are impacted. But like, this is a very contemporary thing that happened. And so going back to my question, Allie, like, like, how common (laughs) is that? Like, we can only speculate, you know, we can speculate. I don't know that I... Yeah, I don't know that I can give you like an answer mm. on how common it is. I feel like I feel like it it's more common than it mm. should be, obviously, because I feel like we do hear these stories and and maybe that that documentary can shed some light on mm-hmm. on that, but I think that we're just we're at the end of the day, we're so mm. money driven that these kind of rush decisions are what sometimes end up putting us in really terrible situations and maybe it is better to just take a step back and actually think through a problem which should be always the way you go but yeah I mean everybody's heard of Aaron Brockovich Mm -hmm. too which another great movie (laughs) if you haven't seen that um on the on that whole saga but yeah I I, sorry I don't think I can answer as far as like how common it is but it's I think just overall the overlooking of science and some of these decision making situations is is yeah. too common. Yeah, absolutely. And this is kind of an off topic question I had for you. And it's actually one of the things I wrote to you when I first emailed you to collaborate. I was watching this docu-series and each episode focused on something different. And this one was focusing on water. Like, what does it mean to have good water versus, you know, bad water? And like, what does that all mean? And something that I grew up thinking is that it's not good to have minerals in your water. And based on this documentary, they were basically saying like having a high mineral content is actually good for you because those are like natural minerals we don't have in our body, I guess, that we that the water can supplement us with. So my question to you is Mm -hmm. the way that our system runs right now in the US in terms I know it's different based on even like I'm sure like city or towns and things like that. But in general, does our water like to keep some mineral content in our tap water or is it just treated to get rid of everything? I'm not positive, but I would say that I don't, I can't think of an off the top of my head of like a treatment we use to remove minerals. It's also just what's in your water already because we're pulling water from all different places, right? I mean, if you live in Texas, you might be using um, groundwater from a reservoir. If you're in Southern California, they actually pump in a lot of that water from the Colorado oh, River, wow, okay. which is yeah. all <laughs> yeah. across the country. And then where I'm from in New Hampshire, we have a lot of private wells, which is a whole nother can of worms when it comes to water quality, because uh, I believe Northern California is big on it too. But in, in New England, there's a high arsenic content in our soil. So if you have a well you're not getting that same treatment. So you're exposed to whatever's in that water. To answer the question, I would say that we don't specifically look to remove something like that, but it is really dependent on your location and and also what your state or municipality is choosing to do in their yeah, water treatment. Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> this has been an education for me <laughs> completely. 
my brain is like <laughs> marinating. Um, to be honest, uh, <laughs> to be honest, one thing that I think about is so I grew up in Northern California. I grew up in um, the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas, probably about forty-five minutes to an hour away from South Lake Tahoe. So the culture at my okay. school was actually very big on AP environmental sciences. And the first thing you learn as someone who lives in an area is the language of keep Tahoe blue and you do learn about algal blooms specifically bodies of fresh water so in a way like this was very nostalgic to hear about these things but also I know on your on pretty PhD you even have a little video that you share that shows the increase of algal blooms in freshwater bodies across the country and we know that these are increasing due to increasing temperatures and uh, in the atmosphere and our earth becoming a greenhouse and all that stuff. Um, I am not very good <laughs> with this language, but for our poison pals who have not checked out the pretty PhD, can you tell us how much has this increased across the U.S.? What parts of the U.S. are being the most severely impacted by these algal blooms or these cyanobacteria blooms? And what role can we play as people who might not be in research or science to influence making sure that we don't get these cyanotoxins in our in our drinking water. Yeah, that's that's a million dollar <laughs> question. I it's like, you know, it they're increasing both from temperature and nutrient pollution. So a lot of kind of the things that we could do when it comes to preventing them would be stop using fertilizers as much, stop using pesticides and and, and things like that, especially agriculturally. But I also want to point out, I hate, I always have to like do the little caveat whenever I bring up pesticides because not all pesticides are bad, just like not all man-made chemicals are bad, but it's just like the frequency of use that we, we do all these things. I know that when I lived in Florida, there were certain days that you could fertilize or you could water your grass and it's all to mitigate what's basically running off into what's there is the Indian River Lagoon, which is basically the intercoastal waterway between the ocean and the land. So I would say that just being more mindful overall of like what you're using. If if you live in the desert, don't have grass. Don't don't be trying to plant species that are not needed there, kind of thing. But they are, you know, occurring more frequently in the south because that's where we're seeing hotter temperatures. It's a big issue in Southern California. It's a big issue here in Texas. But even, you know, I was talking about Lake Erie and Toledo. I mean, that's pretty far north. And and I know in New Hampshire, we have them too. A lot of states, I will say there are, there are probably like three states in total in the U.S. that have any kind of guideline out for drinking water and uh, cyanotoxins, but there are quite a few that have recreational guidelines out. And so a lot of the states have started, they have like these interactive maps on their website where you can basically monitor real time what the lake conditions are throughout the state. And, it, and obviously smaller states like New Hampshire are going to be a lot easier to, to do, but most states now are testing regularly in their water bodies for algal blooms, and there is a push in on the research side, which is more removed from what I do because I'm doing treatment, I'm not doing prevention. And so there is more research that's starting to be done on prevention, but it's just, again, another field that needs more research done because we don't even know, for example, there are people that argue that nitrogen in water is what's causing this uptick of 
algal blooms, but then there are other people that say, no, it's not nitrogen, it's phosphorus. And it's, there's a lot of conflicting, I guess, there's no consensus on, on what the root cause is. And so really determining the root cause is the way that we're going to start reducing some of those issues. I know, the only reason I'm silent is like, I'm just thinking about all of it. I, you know what? This is this has been such a treat because you don't think about water as something that could potentially harmful or toxic, meaning the things that are in your water. And it's everywhere. Like people are constantly drinking water or swimming in it or doing whatever with it. And I just cannot believe it is mind blowing to me the information mm-hmm. that you presented with us today that people don't know more about it and that it's not <laughs> regulated. And even then with the EPA, I'm assuming not every every state has that as a relation even under the EPA. So it's just like, why is this not being talked about more? (laughs) So we will definitely do our part to spread the message. So I'm so glad that you taught us that today. So thank you. Also, we actually when in our early stages of that shit is poison. One of our earlier episodes did talk about lead poisoning specifically. I think Harini, correct me if I'm wrong. It was like the this sandwich is yeah. poison episode. <laughs> yes. Basically, some some guy in Germany was like putting lead and mercurial metals in his coworkers uh, coworkers sandwiches. So that was our story. But we did touch a little bit on like the prevalence of lead in our infrastructure. And so to to bring it here today, honestly, I'm happy we had the t- this discussion again mm-hmm. because it's like it's a, we we need to be yes. reminded like yo, lead is never good <laughs> yeah. for you. Doesn't matter how small the amount. Like it's always toxic. <laughs> Exactly. So I'm happy that this was the poison of choice, not happy about the circumstances, but yeah, it's a good, like we have to be, right. we have to remember these things. Super appreciate you bringing yeah. this. I want to ask some follow-up questions about specifically the Pretty PhD, which is your blog. So as you had mentioned before, one of the reasons why this blog came about is you wanted to show folks, specifically women in sciences, like, hey, you can do it all. You can be that trifecta. You can be that smart, fashionable funny. This is more than a trifecta, sexy, all of it, right? You can do it all. So my question for you is, what advice do you have for those who might be marginalized in STEM, like, you know, beyond women, anyone who might be marginalized in STEM, who are interested in building a creative platform such as like the Pretty PhD? What advice would you give for those folks who want to kind of like showcase their more creative side or their science communication side through blogging or Instagram? How would they go about doing that? Yeah. So I'm sure this is like a lot of people's answer, but the first step is just to start. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's an amazing social community of scientists that I have found through blogging and And I can say, because I'm on both sides of blogging, like I do fashion and lifestyle blogging, which has its own kind of people. And then I do science communication blogging. And I've never met nicer people than in the science communication realm. So that's just something to keep in mind. But Instagram has this awesome community. I know Twitter has a pretty big community. I'm just not super on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I've never really gotten into that platform. But I would say like the biggest way to start is you know, just start sharing and and start really working on your communication skills. And that's something I'm so thankful for through this whole experience of blogging and everything is learning to talk science and learning to talk in a digestible way. Because that's the main goal of science communication is is translating this technical jargon that we use on a day-to-day basis in a way that my mom's going to understand. 
And I think another big thing, if you're looking to kind of get into the STEM community and just sharing your love of STEM is really outreach pretty much in any school, but also there are plenty of organizations outside of school if you're not in school anymore. There are tons that do outreach and getting involved with some of these organizations to talk to elementary or middle or high schoolers about your route to STEM or what is toxicology, things like that. That's really going to help your communication as well as just kind of propel you into the the STEM sharing space, I guess. And don't be afraid to carve your own niche out of it because every person is so different. You know, obviously I'm doing fashion and, and toxicology, but maybe you're a painter and a biologist. I don't know. You know, there's so many different things you can do. There I have a bunch of friends that are Latinas in STEM that have this whole community on Instagram as well. And so I really think there's no wrong way to do it other than that. Just jump into it and you'll learn along the way. Such a good answer. Yeah. Love it. So true. That's how we felt about our podcast. That's why I'm laughing. I'm just like, because like when we did our podcast, we're like, we don't even know what the heck we're doing. (laughs) We're just going to do it. No, I mean, I had to, I had to learn to like, how do I make a website? Like. And then because I'm doing fashion blogging, learning about like the marketing side of things has been really interesting for me as far as like how you do collaborations with brands and how the actual yeah marketing side works. But there's a learning curve for sure, but I don't think there's any like wrong right. way to do it. Everybody has their own way. Totally. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can kind of like I said, have your own niche and and maybe do something that's repetitive. I think that also helps because, for example, I do this thing called Talks Talks Tuesdays, and it's something I I like thought of it one day and I was like, oh, this sounds cool because it's like an alliteration and whatever. But I just started on Instagram every Tuesday. I write a little. You know, I think you get 2,000 characters in your Instagram caption space, which is very small. But basically, I try to explain a topic that's somehow related to toxicology in that little space. And the goal, again, is I have a lot of fashion followers. I have a lot of science followers. So if I can pull those people in and maybe they read about lead toxicity for a day or I did a lot of COVID talks because I was getting tons of questions from not only other science friends, but all of my my fashion friends or the friends that are moms and have kids and what this means for them. And I'm like, well, how can I make this easily understandable? And so I started that little series. But if you can do something that sets your little platform apart from another science platform, then all the better as far as your growth and reaching more people. Love it. Great advice. So I think that's it for today. It's a great way to wrap it up. Amazing. Well, let's go into our antidotes. I'll go first. And then, and then Allie, you will be our last antidote to end on a high note. My antidote today is that I cleaned my room. I know it's so bland. I don't have any good stories, but today my antidote is that I cleaned my room and I'm small wins that's really all it is and uh, Mm -hmm. i've been doing actually a good job of cleaning it but what happens is it's like i'll clean and then the moment i need to like scrounge together an outfit for a night out or whatever all the drawers are taken out everything's on my bed and and then it just looks like it was literally clean a minute ago and now it's just messed up so i think 
it's not a matter of cleaning for me. It's more of like, how do I find an outfit without being messy about it? So that's the learning curve there. But that is my antidote is that I cleaned my room. There we I go. love it. <laughs> Thank you. Good job, Megan. Thank you. Um, my antidote is part of the reason we started this podcast was so that we obviously could talk about poison and have fun and hang out with each other every week, mm-hmm. but also to meet other people in the community. So very happy and very excited that Ali agreed to do this collab with us because it has been super, super fun meeting you. So that is my antidote, meeting people in the community. Ah, Always fun. Thank you. Love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me on. I So antidote just being that it's something that good, that made you feel good kind of thing. So anything that made you happy. Yeah, this week. I I have a love for another podcast. Well, it's not a podcast. It's a radio show. It's the Bobby mm-hmm. Bones show. It's a country music radio show. Um, nice. But I listen to it like pretty much every morning. They're kind of just like a group of misfits that are super fun and, and just feel like you're friends when you're listening to them. But yeah. they they were making this joke about this George Strait song. I don't know if mm-hmm. you know. It's called Carrying Your Love With Me. And there's a line in the song that says... I'm carrying your love with me from West Virginia down to Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And one of the people on the show was like, that's not very far. They're like neighboring <laughs> states. Like that's so lame that you're only carrying your love from West Virginia to Tennessee. And so they got on this like segment and they made this bet and they said, fine, if we raise X amount, you know, you set the X amount mm-hmm. of money for whatever charity you want. Will you walk from West Virginia to Tennessee? <laughs> And so this guy is a foster dad. And so he picked foster charity and said, you know, if we can raise $10,000, I will will make that walk. And they made it to $50,000. Wow. And so it just like warmed my heart to like, yes, it's goofy. And he's going to (laughs) like spend a couple days walking from state (laughs) to state. But like the fact that they were able to raise that much money for a good cause just made me smile and made me happy. That's just like a win-win situation. So lovely. I love that. Oh my gosh. I adore that. I love how he got on the phone and was like, bet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is not a long walk, but that the outcome is fantastic. Oh, that's amazing. What's the name of this radio show? It's called the Bobby Bones show. Bobby it's, Bones. it's pretty popular. It's on like super early in the mornings across the country, but you can listen to it as a mm-hmm. podcast too. I think it's nice. available everywhere, but I'm obsessed Amazing. with it. My boyfriend makes fun of me because I talk about it all the time, but <laughs> it's for well, good I mean, reason. I would, there's yeah. good stuff that's happening there. Exactly. We're going to put awesome. this in the sh- our show notes for anyone that might be interested because this looks like a hoot and a <laughs> Check it out. Awesome. Okay. So that was our antidotes and that was our episode. Okay, Allie, ready to take us on out of this episode? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and don't risk it for the lead biscuit. Hell yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Allie, best of luck on your dissertation, Allie. Best of luck. Thank you so much for being on here. This is really fun. This is super, super fun. And before we actually head out, do you want to plug anything or do you have anything coming up that you want our audience to know? No, just, I guess, plug my my blog, which is prettyphd.com or Mm prettyphdblog.com. And um, you can find me on Instagram and also attempting on TikTok at the Pretty PhD blog. (laughs) So you can go check out those. I'm always happy to have conversations if you want to shoot me an email Mm -hmm. or DM or whatever you want to do. So yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll put all her information in our show notes so you can access that there. Thanks so much, Allie. This was another episode of That Shit is Poison, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye.